0: And today I'm here with Winifred Sullivan, professor and chair of the Department of Religious Studies at Indiana University and winner of the AAR Book Award in Analytical and Descriptive Studies. She's here to speak to us about her book, A Ministry of Presence, Chaplaincy, Spiritual Care, and the Law, published with University of Chicago Press. Congratulations and thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you. I'm very glad to have this
0: opportunity to talk to you, Christian. The main case study you look at here is thinking about religion and law through chaplains. Some listeners might know all about chaplains, but many probably do not. So perhaps you can begin with who are chaplains? How does one become a chaplain? Where do we find them? What do they do?
1: If readers are unfamiliar or surprised, they'll be very much in the same position I was in when I started this project. (laughs) Uh, I first became interested in this subject through the Nicholson case, which is one of the legal cases I discuss in the book. And I was initially attracted and interested and surprised by the fact that judges seem to have no constitutional problems with government hospitals providing spiritual care. And that startled me. As I learned more about spiritual care and the practices in hospitals and other places, I was led to the figure of the chaplain, who in many modern secular institutions is the person who is the expert or the adept in the provision of spiritual care. So I might just briefly say that chaplains originate in the Middle Ages. They're a medieval Christian office. In the Middle Ages and still today, chaplains are distinguished by the fact that they are religious experts or priests, ministers, rabbis, etc., who don't work in the usual congregational or church or religious organizational setting, but work in secular settings where they represent, in many cases, both their own religious tradition and, more broadly, The religiousness of human beings. And so, whether they're in a business, a school, an airport, they're there to care for the people they encounter in these various situations using their expertise, but not under the direct supervision, say, of a bishop or something like that. They really are everywhere. This was something else that surprised me as I worked on this that it's not just prisons and in the military and in hospitals, but many, many business places, racetracks, oil rigs, and cities have chaplains that deal with people who are victims of crime. And of course, firemen have chaplains and police. So the more you look, the more you see that chaplains are, are all around us. Mm-hmm. But they're a little bit less visible, partly because you can't see them unless you look for them sometimes. The
0: type of spiritual practice provided by chaplains, you say, is largely a product of law. Can you help position us in the sense of where does chaplaincy fit within the intersection of modern American religious life and U.S. law?
1: So, I mean, there have been chaplains throughout American history. Um, This book focuses primarily on the present and the ways in which chaplains have come to occupy a very particular place in American contemporary life. So I would say that one way to think of this is that in the last, say, 25, 30 years, there's been a major shift or revolution in the jurisprudence of the First Amendment and an abandonment of what's sometimes called the high separationism of the mid-20th century. That is, when the court understood that The free exercise clause required in some cases that individuals be given uh, special exemptions for religious reasons from laws that otherwise applied to everybody. And on the other hand, they also felt that they had an obligation to maintain a very high wall between what they conceived to be church and state or religion and secular spaces. And this was mostly fought out in school contexts partly because of a legacy of anti-Catholicism and so issues between Protestants and Catholics. But beginning in the 80s and 90s, the U.S. Supreme Court began to back away from that strong separationism. And yet there still is a kind of built-in bind in the two clauses of the First Amendment. So it seems to give with one hand and take back with the other, if, if, if you see what I mean, that on the one hand, the Constitution says you have some kind of constitutional right really almost expressed absolutely to practice your religion. But on the other hand, anything the government does to help you with that, the free exercise clause seems in some sense to promise that, could be seen as an establishment or a privileging of either religion in general or particular religions. And so that if you look at over the course of the jurisprudence of the First Amendment, you will see that this tension exists in every case. Every case is both the free exercise and an establishment clause case in a sense, every religion case. What I see chaplains and the practice of spiritual care as doing is kind of solving this problem. In other words, as I noticed in the Nicholson case, judges understand government uh, provision of spiritual care as having no constitutional problem because it doesn't privilege sectarian religion or particular religion of a kind, but it recognizes all people, or maybe we should say all Americans, it's kind of hard to say which of those (laughs) you might be talking about, as, as being inherently religious or spiritual. And I think from the court's point of view, this solves their problem. It kind of dissolves the knotty bind of the First Amendment.
0: This Nicholson versus Freedom from Religion Foundation case—it's a debate about what is being called spiritual fitness. Perhaps you could detail this case for us: what what was going on, what were the outcomes, and why is this a useful example for thinking about the contemporary American religious landscape in law?
1: So maybe I should say first of all, this isn't an important case. It's a case from a federal district court in Wisconsin. It's not uh, a Supreme Court decision. For people who are interested in doing work in this area. I urge people to look at the work of lower courts rather than the Supreme Court, because these provide many interesting sites for observing American yeah. religion. It's sort of caught in this little sort of ethnographic moment, if you want. The Freedom From Religion Foundation, for those listeners who don't know it, is one of the most active litigators. It's an organization like the ACLU, but it litigates cases, brings cases, brings mainly against government entities attempting to maintain the wall of separation, attempting to insist on a very secular space. So the FFRF brought this lawsuit against the Veterans Administration, complaining that the Veterans Administration hospitals had instituted a policy of assessing every patient as to their spiritual health and then providing spiritual cures. And from the perspective of FFRF, this was a clear violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. So, and I think in a casual sense, I I assumed probably FFRF was, was right under law at that time. And I was surprised to discover that the judges really saw no problem whatsoever. And they simply accepted what I think they learned from reading the paper and watching television, that You know, scientists have done studies and shown that spiritual cures and spiritual healing is important for all patients. And they simply accept that this no longer has the kind of divisive potential that Americans imagine old-world sectarian religion to have. So FFRF lost the case, and that's really where I began this study, although that's not the most important part of the book. At this point, it was the sort of motivating or motivating moment for me in, in trying to understand the legal aspects of spiritual care and the ways in which I began to see that the work of chaplains, the work of spiritual care, not only solved the First Amendment problem, but also solved a problem for the many Americans who no longer have home congregations or home religious organizations, but who find their religious and spiritual care and even celebration and community at work, in the hospital, at various other places for a very mobile population. And also that this new practice solved a problem for people training to be ministers and priests and rabbis, et cetera. So as there's been a decline in some parts of the country in this kind of congregational religion, the work of chaplains provides an opportunity for these new ministers to do what they came to ministry to do, but also to have benefits if they work for a secular institution, uh, to be a little outside of the notice of the keepers of orthodoxy in their own tradition. So they're kind of individual religious practitioners or entrepreneurs. And I don't by that mean to sneer in any way because I think many of them are trying to do a really remarkable balancing act, almost heroic effort to both be faithful to their own religious commitments and then to serve in an inclusive way an extremely broad swath of humanity.
0: (laughs) Now, these ideals of diversity and universality combined with secularity and, and legal constructs get played out in interesting ways through the title of your book, A Ministry of Presence. Can you talk a little bit about what this means and what it looks like and how we might think about the ideas of religion and secular and government and law in relation to this?
1: Well, this is one of the more interesting aspects of this kind of religion that I really wasn't aware of before I started working on this project. And as I moved into trying to learn more about chaplains and the work they did, I kept bumping into this expression, a ministry of presence, and both in writing, online, in conversations with people, in memoirs of army chaplains who served in Bosnia, I kept hearing this phrase, and I wasn't quite sure what it meant. As I came to understand it, I would say right now it has an enormous currency more even than when I finished the book several years ago, it is ubiquitous. And what it refers to is is complicated, (laughs) complicated (laughs) and simple at the same time. So again, this is a practice which seems to solve some of the problems of diversity and particularity, because it focuses on the moment when the chaplain and the chaplain's client, that encounter, and a kind of existential grounding that that encounter and commitment that that encounter has for the work of spiritual care. And the sources of this practice, this ministry, are quite diverse. You can see it partly through the CPE movement, clinical pastoral education, which comes out of hospital chaplaincy in the U.S. and Canada, in which hospital chaplains train to sit with patients without imposing any kind of traditional religious practice but simply to be there with them and this sounds simple but this is something that requires training and is understood to require professional training the capacity to simply be with the patient and respond to the patient's needs as a spiritual caregiver but the Expression of Ministry of Presence also, interestingly, has a very, very specific, if you want, high Christian origin in the Eucharistic piety of 19th and 20th century France. So you have the interesting and so American, in some ways, paradox of American Protestants, Jews, etc., adopting a practice which actually refers a very, very specific lead to a Catholic theological understanding of the Incarnation.
0: One other thing that I think anyone interested in the study of religion will benefit from is the approach you offer here, which you call a legal anthropology of religion, and I hope everyone will pick up the book if for nothing else of that. So what does this method look like in your application, and how do you think others might be able to think through questions of religion through your model?
1: The starting place for me always is that religion and law are never separate. That has to be always the starting point. And that religion and law, in a sense, are co-producers of the sacred, if you want. They conspire to produce the religious practice, religious practices in the U.S. more generally, but in in a very particular way here. What I just said obviously would require... A much longer defense in, in another context, but you ask sort of where I start from. So I want to refute the assumption, which is pretty widespread in religious studies, but also in legal studies, that religion and law are somehow separate domains, which don't have significant effects on each other's core missions. So maybe one way I would say is that religion has a life in the law, and in a very specific way in modern secular law that's distinctive. But in the U.S., of course, because the First Amendment is understood to be so foundational to American religious life, to actually motivate and to create American religious exceptionalism, then You can't really understand American religion, the phenomenology of American religion, without looking in legal places. I guess that would be one way of saying it. So what I'm interested in is what is religion for American law? I'm also interested in the other questions about what law is for American religion and how they together create American religious and legal life just to add one more thing to what you just asked me about my method. Yes, I can say I make these various assumptions about the relationship of religion and law, but I think what makes it real is to take seriously what seem to be unimportant small regulatory moments in American law or even in American private law, such as the rules of professional organizations, such as the chaplaincy organizations, or the Department of Education, which actually is involved in the credentialing of chaplains. I urge religion scholars to use all the resources of law, and I think that will enrich their understanding of American religion.
0: Well, Winnie, congratulations on a wonderful book, and thank
1: you for making the time to talk about it. Thank you, Christian. I enjoyed it.